Hey everyone, welcome back to the next episode of People, Pain, and Practice. Our guest today is Eric Pervez. He's an RMT educator and healthcare researcher based on the island in Victoria. In this conversation, we touch on many things, such as his journey into the profession and opening up his own clinic, Achieve Health, as well as how his perspective on clinical applications has changed over the years, especially after reading Explain Pain. So kick back and relax so you can enjoy this phenomenal chat with Eric Purvis. Eric, thank you so much for joining me on the show today to have a excellent conversation. Thanks, Dean, for having me. I'm uh, happy to be here. Wonderful. So you are a fellow RMT in BC, but you're on a sectioned off piece of land on the island, eh? That's correct. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> in Victoria, BC. Wonderful. So can you tell us a bit about your journey into this profession and how you got where you are right now? Uh, yeah, so I think it all begins from my when I was in university, my first year at university, I was playing on the uh, UVic uh, soccer team and I had experienced a number of injuries and we had a team physical therapist that uh, she referred me to RMT um, mm. and I was just completely like enamored with 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 it and and with uh, who he was and, and how great I felt after the treatments that it kind of planted a seed that I knew this was something I wanted to get into uh, okay. so that yeah so I, I kind of became like addicted to like getting massage and, and manual treatments I just I just loved getting it done and I decided uh, you know in my mid-20s that maybe I should do this for a living so yeah, I went to went back to massage school, and I've been uh, practicing for just a, close to 13 years now. Right on. Yeah, and um, yeah, I own a clinic in Victoria called Achieve Health. I co-own it. I, my business partner is actually a chiropractor, and uh, it's uh, it's been it's been a great uh, a great journey. It's been a lot of work, but uh, I'm really happy to uh, to be where I am. So you started this whole journey from an injury, then it sounds like, eh? Yeah, exactly. I had a uh, uh, hip flexor type problem, and, right. uh, and it just uh, the massage was the one thing that, that helped me to, to get back on the field. And uh, you know, I became I uh, was quickly you know thought that there was something magical that was happening there that I wanted to learn. Right, right. So, does, was there anything in particular about seeing an RMT that you thought? Wow, this is amazing. Or was it just the results? Was it? Do you think it was more the person that you saw? I think it was all of the above. I think the person I saw, he was a. I really like clicked well with him. Like we mm. had a really good kind of therapeutic relationship, and and then the results and it worked. If it didn't work, and if I felt worse, then I would have never, never gone back. And but right. it, uh, yeah, I thought it was, it did everything I needed and wanted, and so I, that's that was kind of my go-to therapy for for years. Gotcha. So did, at that time, were you seeing physio, chiro, acupuncture, any other therapies? Uh, I hadn't seen chiro or, or acupuncture, but I had been to physio. I did have a physio as well at the same clinic that I used to see. Uh, I used to kind of go between them for various reasons. Okay. So that is quite an interesting tale then, because uh, it just so happened that maybe if a chiro helped you out, maybe you'd be in a chiro school and teaching chiropractors instead of RMTs now, hey? 
<laughs> it's quite it's quite possibly yeah quite quite possible quite uh, quite possible yeah i mean and then physio was another thing too that i, that I was interested in but uh, i i just when i had to choose i figured that the uh, i figured the rmt profession was going to be better suited to what i was looking for right okay so you had quite a um active background it sounds like and uh your clinic sounds like it may be quite active with that being in the name is there a specific um demographic or intent that you had going into the profession thinking, oh, I really want to help this type of people or like I want to be able to be that person for another athlete or was it more general in the sense when you got into the profession and you just knew it was going to be something you liked and you were just going to see how it turned out? Yeah, when I first went, like when I was first in school, when I first started practicing, I really wanted to work with athletes because that was that was my interest, that was my background. But that didn't last for very long because I realized treating athletes was not really a lot of fun. <laughs> it was a lot of work. They were very demanding, and it wasn't really that interesting. Uh, okay. Once I started doing more of it, mm-hmm. uh, so I have I I call myself a generalist. I, I treat a little bit of everybody and everything, and uh, I find it's much more interesting, much more satisfying professionally. Right. Okay. So, did you when you started your practice, did you gear it more towards? an athletic background and then you realized, hey, you know what, this isn't all it's cracked out to be? Or did you figure that out even through the school process? Uh, no, it wasn't until after. I, I've been practicing for a few years and I predominantly my practice was a lot of, at the time, was a lot of triathletes. Okay. Uh, I kind of had a couple ins with some of the people in the triath- triathlon community, which is quite big here in Victoria. And then mm-hmm. you get in to treat a couple and then they refer and then it just kind of expanded. So I was treating... You know, every day I had, a, uh, you know, it seemed like two or three different triathletes uh, in my clinic. And it, it was it was great. But um, they kind of, you know, some of them retired and they started to move away. And I started getting other people into my, my practice that weren't uh, high-level athletes. And uh, I just kind of let my practice kind of uh, evolve to, you know, adapt to whatever, whatever people came in. And uh, mm. I, th- I found it a lot more satisfying. Right. So did you find that it was more of a conscious decision to start start bringing in different types of individuals or did you find it was kind of naturally you saw maybe less athletes or more of these generalist type treatments? Yeah, I think it was more of a natural progression. I, I didn't mm. I stopped seeking out um, certain populations like athletes and, and just kind of people that needed help started filling in those those, those holes in the day and. Uh, I, I felt like the treatments I could give or provide to uh, people that weren't these athletes, high-level athletes, it seemed a lot more significant. You know, athletes were always out there beating themselves up and always preparing for events and stuff. So you were, you kind of, I kind of felt like you just, you were just part, of, you were just part of their their team, which was great. But I felt like I wasn't really having much of an influence on their on their overall well-being. Right, and did you find that when you started treating different populations that? you had a bit more of maybe an integral role in being this this person that could really make a change in their life? Yeah, I think, I think yeah, I felt uh, I felt like it was more, um, I could influence, you know, uh, healthy behaviors or influence, you know, their, how they were uh, dealing with whatever physical problem they were having. Uh, I felt like they, they listened a lot more and they were a lot more receptive to what I had. Uh, it was more of a, a uh, it was more of a, 
mutual relationship, whereas the athletes would like tell you what they wanted to do. They're like, they told right. you what to do and you really had no say either to give them what they wanted or they would just go find someone else that gave them what they wanted. And, and after a while that started to, to bug me because I, I started having to do the types of treatments that I didn't think didn't, didn't make a lot of sense to me. And so I, I ended up doing it and being, being rather uh, reluctant to do it. And that wasn't very satisfying. Right. Yeah. I can, I can definitely understand that. And it's interesting that you brought up the uh, influence part of things, um, how you're able to have more influence over um, people, aspects of people's lives and that sort of thing, because now uh, you are influencing RMTs themselves with your teaching, your continuing education courses, and then also um, having opened up your, uh, your own clinic with your business partner, you've had this um, what seems like, and you can correct me, two, two big events um, of being more of a teacher and also having your own clinic and business to run, which is a lot different than, say, just running your practice out of another clinic, right? For sure. Yeah. I mean, both, uh, both things have been, have been, uh, you know, the, the clinic that we have, uh, and we have like a continuing education component of our business as well, as mm-hmm. well as my own, as my own teaching stuff I do, really like, Balancing those and using those things together to really try to influence change in our profession has, has really driven me probably for the last four or five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot of work, but it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's great. And, and I, and, you know, we started small and we've grown. So just the, the clinic itself has grown. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 we went, we started from two people. Now we have 12. Right. Uh, actually, we're interviewing another guy today, so we might have 13. Uh, which is great. Uh, but yeah, the, the continuing education stuff is really where we're putting most of our effort into now to try to, uh, bring in good quality educators and influence, you know, how not, not just RMTs, but like physios and chiros and athletic mm. therapists and acupuncturists. Now we're really trying to like, uh, break down these kind of silos of separate professions and bring us all together because we're all doing the same thing. We're just doing it a little bit differently. Right, and, and so that's been that's been the the, the thing that uh, we're really focused on is is the education and, and and the influencing people, hopefully in a positive way, to to question and and to and to uh, learn and to not accept the status quo anymore. Yeah, and it sounds like from our a past conversation we've had, your vision of this is quite grand too. It's not just to affect a small population on the island; it's more national, maybe even international. Is that right? Uh, I would, yeah, that sounds great when you say it that way. That, I mean, that would be great. I mean, we started just locally. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started, we started doing some just small, uh, discussion groups and educational stuff with like small, little, little, little pockets of people. And then it's kind of spread, you know, around the island and it's gone to Vancouver. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, to connect with other RM, like-minded RMTs and physios from, all over Canada and the U.S. and been able to to, to do courses and, and workshops at various locations, and uh, you, you can see that there is it's it's the, we're moving in the right direction, right? We're we're there's people that are interested in in in, in challenging what we think we know, and there's inter- people interested in, in pain, and there's people interested in biopsychosocial and you know kind of uh, the limitations of, of of what we know in school. Uh, but uh, we're trying to empower people not uh, to, to be better, not to tell them that they suck. <laughs> and I think sometimes that's that's the key message is is to um, when you when we're when you're educating, right? A lot of times people can get very defensive if you're challenging what uh, 
what they they think they know or what they right. what they know long held beliefs or things long that they were deeply yes. ingrained into them through school or whatever it may be. Yeah, exactly. So what we're our, our grand vision is to is to hopefully create like a critical mass of RMTs that are willing to say, you know, we can be better. You know, we we we're, we're, there's pieces of, of what we're missing in our education and in our uh, continuing education requirements and in these beliefs uh, and these limitations to to what we, we we've learned. We can be better, and we need to we need to create demand change. And I think if there's enough people asking the same questions and demanding the same changes, I think we can we can be awesome. I think we can we can reform uh, our profession in in a, in a positive way without. You know, forgetting historically what it is we do really well, which is, you know, push, pull, and twist on the skin. Right. Can't forget that, the actual massage part of it, hey? Yeah, exactly. And, and I think yeah. that's the thing what happens when you talk about this stuff is I think a lot of people think, oh, I just got to, you know, rub the skin and turn off the lights. You're like, well, that feels great. But you can use that stuff with a, a greater narrative to change in a narrative and empowering patients and learning some movement and exercise principles, which are all within our scope. And you can be a way better therapist. That's right. what we're hoping. That's what the kind of things we're hoping to do. Hoping to do, yeah. So you mentioned that there's a few maybe pieces missing in maybe <clears throat> the curriculum as it stands for RMTs and CECs. Where, yeah. if you could pick out two or three things that you feel would have the greatest impact if they were changed or replaced with something in the curriculum or CEC, could you pick out a few things like that? And then also, where does your passion or drive come uh, in order to make these changes uh, come into reality. Because there's one thing, some people are very interested in it and doing a lot of research and making changes in their own practice, but they don't quite have the drive or ambition that you do to make the change more widespread. So if you could pick out a few things that would be big changes, and then why is that important to you? And do you think you have an idea of where that comes from? Okay, uh, yeah, I can try and answer that. So I think... Uh, the number one thing that I think you, uh, would make the hugest difference in our curriculum was an actual uh, understanding of pain, like a proper mm. course on like, pain and the science of pain and, and how that relates to everything. Because the number one thing that brings people into our clinics to see us is people hurt. Right. And, and so I think if we actually had a proper, like kind of a biopsychosocial understanding of pain, and that was one of the earliest things we learned in school, I think that would completely change how RMTs think and reason when they graduate. Because what we learn in school, and, and, and this is still the way it's taught now, and I know in some schools they have really good instructors that are kind of, you know, leaning towards teaching biopsychosocial stuff. But I think for the vast majority of, of people in school, they learn that it's some type of pathoanatomical problem. Mm -hmm. they, they realize that there's a tissue-based problem for everything, which makes sense more in acute conditions, but not in chronic or persistent conditions. So I think changing, like understanding pain would be the number one thing that I think would be fantastic in, in, our, in our curriculum, as well as I really think that there needs to be uh, like an evidence-based, science-based understanding of uh, and questioning of, of literature, like scientific literature, mm. because this complete, it's, it's in the, the competency documents and the foundational knowledge uh, documents. They talk about evidence-based practice and patient-centered care, but that stuff isn't actually taught in the schools very well. And I know in all the teaching that I do, I always ask these questions, and I never get an answer from anybody that actually 
has learned that stuff, uh, right. which I find very, very uh, unfortunate. And I think it's it's kind of negligent on behalf of, of the schools to to graduate students without these those two core components. Because if you understand research, then and you can understand how to critique things, and you understand the the basic scientific principles, and you understand pain, then it makes your learning journey as you grow as a professional much, much uh, greater, much better. Yeah, and I think those are two amazing points and very well articulated because they lay they lay a bit better of a foundation to base the rest of the knowledge or skills that you learn upon, right? And, and just exactly. like you said, having the right critical thinking skills um, in order to deal with various things that come up as a generalist like you. Um, yeah. You see a wide-ranging, um, I'm sure a very wide-ranging demographic from acute injuries, maybe still some sports stuff, maybe oh, some yeah. chronic things. And um, if you don't have an understanding of the pain or if you're not able to um, accurately decipher and understand research, then it's harder to base your treatments off of something that has a good foundation, right? Brilliantly said. Yep. You said it way better than me. Yeah, that's great. I, I, to- I totally agree because, yeah, the, if you can lay those, those principles, those foundations early on in your schooling, then you can build on that rather than learning all the stuff that you don't really need to know and then trying to, like, deconstruct that in practice. And uh, there's actually so, one of my favorite research articles. There's a couple of them, research papers that were done by um, RMTs uh, mm-hmm. in Canada that doing their, their graduate studies. They look... Um, one was uh, Danelda Gowan, who is, uh, she did a study in Saskatchewan, and she looked at um, the evidence-based practice behaviors and beliefs of, of RMTs there. And her research found that what you learn in school, something like 60% of RMTs after, if their if uh, information is brought to them that contradicts what they learned in school, they're, they're unlikely to change their practice beliefs and behaviors. Sixty percent, eh? About that. And there's another uh, woman whose name is, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but she's in Ontario. Mm -hmm. And she did another one, too, on on looking at evidence-based beliefs for RMTs and found that most RMTs, when uh, information was brought to them that wasn't uh, supported by research, they didn't know that. Like, they, they thought it was true. Right. And it's basically because there's a lot of these beliefs in our profession which are unsubstantiated, but which are passed on from generation to generation of RMTs. And I think that if you if you learn proper uh, processes and foundations, like you said in school, I think you wouldn't you wouldn't see as much that significant uh, findings in in the, in the research. Do you do you notice that as an educator yourself? Say when you hear from this research you mentioned that say 30 or 30, 60% of people or RMPs don't really change their long held beliefs. Do you notice that as you're trying to make changes or doing your CECs? Do you notice like, whoa, we have to really go slow to deconstruct these people's beliefs or not even just de- deconstruct them, but in order to give them new information for them to critically think about? Is that something that you've noticed to be true in your own experience? Yes, I. I mean, I've been doing this for a few years now, and in the early days, I basically used to just vomit information at people and say, "Here you go, 
now change what you're doing and what you're thinking. And right. it wasn't received very well. And, and it kind of, I would, I would, I sucked at it. Like I wasn't very good. I just like had information I wanted to get out mm-hmm. over the last couple years, particularly this last year, I've really softened the message to try and be more inclusive to not, to not have people feel like I was, um, approaching the whole process negatively. And I found that with, when you soften the message and, and, and you start at getting people to ask questions, they start to realize that, oh, yeah, maybe this makes what you're saying makes more sense. So uh, rather than just pushing knowledge on people, um, trying to get people to, to ask questions and, and getting people to uh, uh, have a little bit of dialogue about it uh, makes a big difference because people realize that, you know, once you once you hear the limitations of, of, of the old kind of uh, tissue-based stories and and the old rationale is about pain. They realize that, oh yeah, what you're saying now makes a lot more sense. Mm. But it is, there is a lot of resistance and, you know, there's always people that get upset. Uh, but I found that, um, you know, I used to do just a one day course and now I'm doing a couple two day courses. Uh, mm-hmm. And I found the two day courses makes a big difference because people can go away and they can think about it overnight and they can have a glass of wine or whatever and then come back the next day. <laughs> And, and, and say, okay, so what are you saying when you say this? And then they, you can have a chance to kind of engage them again. Right. Uh, I found with just the one day was, was never enough. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, that two day definitely sounds like it could be a, a critical component. But we, yeah, I think we so. Just gives more information more, or more time for people to process. Right, more time to process. Yeah. So yeah. we did uh, kind of skip over the passion part for you. Do you oh, think yeah. That there is a. Just to bring that back around, do you think there is a uh, a source of that that you can touch on? Yeah, I think, you know, what I noticed was, I mean, I remember early years in my practice, so when you'd get people that came in that had these painful conditions that, you know, they didn't make any sense, they didn't see, it just, they hurt all the time all over the place, there was no recent injury, uh, and I, it just didn't, it didn't make any sense to me. And I remember taking all these CE courses and, and, you know, I'd go take a course on the pelvis or the shoulder or the spine or whatever. And then I'd come back to the clinic and I'd have a person that came in. I'm like, okay, you've got a pelvis and you've got a shoulder and you've got a hip and the spine and okay, let's, let's treat it. Let's, and, and then it didn't really seem to matter whether I did, took this new approach, you know, learning all these different, you know, fascial techniques or I took an old approach where I just gave them like a Swedish massage the results didn't really seem to matter. It didn't. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't. It didn't make sense. So I knew something wasn't making any sense. And then, uh, just over eight years ago, uh, my wife got injured, and she started experiencing severe ongoing back and leg pain uh, that actually was made worse by every time she went to go see a different uh, therapist or a different specialist, and they kept on trying all these different inter- interventions, and she got she got worse, and it, it didn't make any sense to me. I was like, well, but they're fixing the problem. If, if tissue is the problem, if you're, you know, if, if the, the structure is the problem, then then what's what's wrong with you? Why are you not getting better? Right. And then and, and then so and it did. But it didn't make any sense to me because based on the knowledge. So I was confused. Right. Uh, so in an effort to understand, I started trolling on social media. I started reading books and articles about pain, started asking a lot of questions. And uh, once I read Explain Pain. Uh, everything kind of clicked and it started and things started to make a lot more sense. Uh, to me, it just sounds like, oh, this is perfect. This makes all the sense in the world moving away from like tissue based rationale to like the nervous system and neurotags and, and all these, these, these 
pain being something more than just a problem in the tissues and a problem with structure. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this this led me to go to the two, uh, first ever San Diego Pain Summit in 2015. And when I went there, like I met a large group of like-minded professionals from all over the world. And we were all asking the same questions. And we were all on our own journey to better understand pain and the role of manual and physical therapy in the treatment and, and management of those who hurt. And we... It really, like, I left feeling like, oh, my gosh, like, I'm not alone. There's other people out here that are asking the same questions and who are have the same frustrations as me. So when I came back in 2015, uh, like, it was February 2015, I had, like, this renewed passion to, to make change. So I, you know, within two months, I applied to, to UBC, to, to the, uh, the Master's Rehabilitation Science Program. I started putting information together and research to try and, and and do like a pain science course. And I started just like getting together with buddies for coffee and beers and, and just asking uh, questions of them and talking about the stuff. And it just kind of, everything was received so well. And the more I've learned and the more people I, I've been able to, to chat with, the more people I've seen that are uh, being influenced by, by the stuff that I'm trying to do, it, it's just built, it's made my passion more and more and more uh, uh, stronger. And uh, I, I really... Uh, you know, I'm just as excited about this stuff now as I was, you know, uh, three or four years ago. Right. So that that trajectory has has continued. You don't feel like it's fallen off at all. No. And I think it's, you know, like <laughs> even being at uh, when I met you last or two weeks ago in person at, uh, at Jen's little uh, pain science discussion group. And you see the people that are there and uh, the excitement that people have for this stuff. It just makes me like more determined that. This is like this is the right path. This is the right trajectory to be on, and and I, yeah, I'm very passionate about it. And uh, I, I love to I love to see that there's all these little groups of people all over the place uh, starting to uh, try to integrate this information into into their practices. Yeah, and so integrating it into your practice, you've started your own clinic. Yeah. Um, Achieve Health is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Achieve, Achieve Health. Health. Yeah. Um, can you give us a bit of a rundown on? Uh, what drove you to open up your own clinic and how you are building a ethical practice as opposed to an economical practice, which is a wonderful article that you wrote on oh, your thank blog you. um, <laughs> oh, thank you. that I really resonated with. So could you give us just a bit of a rundown on the beginnings of how that clinic shaped up and sure. uh, how you got to 12 or maybe later today, 13 people yeah. at the clinic? <laughs> yeah. So the clinic... Uh, so my business partner, Richard, who I actually mm-hmm. also teach with as well, and he's he's a pain nerd just like me. And he, he actually, I should I should have mentioned that earlier, like part of the passion that, that we have for this is, is like him and I together, like we're always like, you know, talking about stuff. And all we do is talk about, about pain and research. And, and uh, so he, he's been a hugely influential in, in my journey as well. Uh, but, you know, he he ha- actually already had the business. But uh, when I when I joined and mm-hmm. I knew Richard because he was actually one of my instructors at uh, WCCMT in Victoria. He taught uh, neurology. And so when I uh, finished uh, school, I had been kind of doing some locuming, and I was working at another clinic part-time, and he needed an RMT at his clinic. So I joined him, and I was just mm-hmm. an associate for a number of years. But then our lease expired, and we had to make a decision of, okay, do we just go our own ways or – what do we do? And, and so we had a discussion and I said, well, let's let's become partners and let's move to a different location and let's let's put everything into this and try and build a clinic that we uh, we really want. 
uh, I didn't really know what I was getting into at the time. And part, sometimes depending on the day, I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? Uh, <laughs> but today is a good day. So it's, uh, I, I'm happy with the decision. Yeah. So, yeah. So eventually what happened once we got into all the, all, all, um, to building it into being a more like ethical and economic, uh, the the kind of strategy that I'm gonna speak for myself. So the strategy that I've used is to basically every day I go into work, I try and put myself out of a job. Mm. I want people to come in, see me as little as possible, so that they can I can empower them to look after themselves, so they don't become reliant on me. Right. I feel that if someone comes in and I treat them as little as possible, and they leave and they get better, they know that they can look after themselves, then I've done my job. And I think that's ethical, right? Mm. Uh, I never say don't come back to see me, but I always say, try this first, and then if you don't feel better, give me a call. Mm. And I find that's way more uh, empowering to the patients because they feel stronger. They feel like they, they don't need me, but I'm more of a facilitator and a coach to kind of give them some advice and Sometimes, you know, to massage and make them feel better and calm things down. Uh, but I, I feel that's a lot more interesting as well because I don't have a practice that's consistently of like the same people every week or two weeks. Right. And I think so to make that economical, I think what's happened is I, I, I over the last number of years, I've been able to change my practice from being somebody that just saw people all the time. And, and but I had a because there's only so many hours I could work in a week. I was limited by how many patients I could see, like how many different patients, because I was seeing the same ones all the time. Mm -hmm. Whereas now I feel like I've greatly increased my uh, clientele or my patient load, but I don't see them as often. And so I'm, I'm actually probably more busy now than I was before because I just constantly have people like always able to kind of cycle in for care without right. having the same person take that Friday at four o'clock appointment every week for like ever. Forever. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find that it took took quite a while to build up that much of a client base? Or did you feel that since you shifted that perspective to you being more of a facilitator or a coach and really helping people, that that drove more people than you expected into, into the business? Uh, yeah, I think there was probably, uh, I, I think there was probably uh, at, a, at a time there was a slight decrease in, in like how how full or how busy I was. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, I think, just because I was I was trying to tell people, you know, I wasn't really sure about how to deliver the message. So I think sometimes it came across as, you don't need me, go away. <laughs> that's not what I was saying, yeah. but I think that's that's how it, it came across. But right. I think once, once yeah, once uh, people felt more empowered and felt better, and they're like, this is the guy that, you know, he I feel better, I see him, he's great. I'm going to refer all my friends and family and coworkers. So it didn't take very long, like maybe out of slowdown of, I don't know, four to six months maybe where things weren't, weren't as busy. But eventually it just it picked right up again and I got just as busier, busier because everybody was, was, was sending people in and it was great. Is there anything that you look for in particular when you're adding people onto your practice? Because you have a, um, it doesn't sound like you would hire just anyone. You have, uh, a certain mindset and a certain philosophy towards treatment and the profession. So is there specific criteria that you look for when you're interviewing or adding on a new clinician, whether it's an RMT, Cairo, whatever the discipline may be? Yes, we're very, very picky. We're very, very specific. Uh, we are lucky that our clinic is, everyone's kind of on board. Uh, and, and the big thing with, with, with us is we really wanted people that joined the clinic to be, uh, 
we wanted everyone to get the same to all the patients to come to see us to have the same message regardless of who they saw. Mm. Uh, so we've we've had people come in that are completely just they won't fit, and so we won't hire them. Uh, but we've been really lucky that uh, most people that are coming to join us or people people ask to come work with us because we've uh, somehow we've built a reputation where where people that are thinking like us want to come work with us because they're the clinics they're at you know maybe they're a chiropractor and they're working in a clinic that's all full of like subluxation based mm. kind of chiros and they're like. This doesn't fit with what I want to do, so they'll they'll search us out. And same with physios. We've had physios that have come join us for the same thing because we're, we're providing a different type of environment and a different type of framework uh, with it within they can work under. Right. So you think that they the reputation you've built has has started to filter out certain people, and you're kind of getting a, uh, a more I think, specific. I think so. Yeah. 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 I think so. We we had a RMT join us a few months ago. Uh, and she specifically joined us because she was she liked what we were doing, and so she left a clinic where she had a full practice and, and came to join us just because she uh, she wanted to learn and she wanted to be part of uh, of uh, what we're trying to do. And uh, we're very thankful. It's great. I don't really know how it happens. I think it just you put you put good information out there and you and you work hard and then uh, sometimes those messages get uh, disseminated to to people that uh, that want to come come join you. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Is there anything in particular that you do to keep up to date with your knowledge and make your training best practice in a way to speak? I know you're pursuing your master's of rehab science, if that's correct. That's correct, um, yeah. Are there any other things that you are you have in place or that you do to make sure that you're up to date yourself? Yeah, I do a lot of, of reading uh, of just various you know, uh, pain and manual and physical therapy articles that are out there. I spend a lot of time on social media. I don't spend as much time engaging on there as much as I spend a lot of time uh, reading uh, articles and blogs and things that, that other people have, have posted. Uh, and then, you know, if there's certain areas of, of things that I'm interested in, I will, uh, I'll do literature searches on them. Uh, mm -hmm. Like a lot of the stuff I've done for, for my master's has, has been doing a ton of research on the role of manual therapists in, in, in pain and, and rehab. So, yeah, I just, I'm curious. I just always like to, to know more. And I think uh, one thing I, I learned early on in this journey was that if I admit to myself that I don't know everything and I'm okay with being wrong, then I'll open my mind to, to learning more. That sounds like an amazing philosophy to have. Yeah, I think it's 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 good. I think it's I think it's uh, everything. I, anyone that will come listen to me talk, it's one thing. It was one piece of information I always want people to, to get away with is that it's okay to be wrong. I'm wrong all the time. Don't worry about mm -hmm. it. You know, just next time be less wrong. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Is there any instance that you can recall recently that you've had your perspective really shifted, or where you thought, oh, I thought. Like, I knew I was ready to be wrong, but I didn't realize I could be this wrong. Uh, hmm. That is a good question. I can't think of anything that comes off the top of my head, but I'm sure as soon as we get off the, the call here, I'll probably, <laughs> I'll, probably <laughs> like, think of, I'll probably think of something. Exactly. Yeah. So as we head to wrap up things, just because we're bumping up on time a little bit, are there a few things that you would you would say are common myths that you see in the profession quite a lot? <laughs> and then... Uh, other than maybe some of the, say, understanding, pain understanding and 
focusing on understanding evidence-based practice and how to decipher good information from bad information. Is there any other common myths that you see that you're like, oh, it's so, so simple. Why are they being told the complete opposite thing? Yeah, this is, where should I begin? This is a long, this could be a long list. Uh, yeah. I, I think some, so common misconceptions, I think almost everything in manual therapy is a misconception. Hmm. Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't work or it doesn't have an effect, because I think we would all be unemployed if it didn't have an effect. But I think most of the beliefs and narratives surrounding manual therapy are unsupported by what we know about anatomy, physiology, and just the basic principles of science. So the biggest thing I think that what we learn, which drives me crazy, uh, is we learn all these beliefs about fascia and craniosacral and visceral manipulation and Swedish, and we learn all these different like acronyms for mm. for stuff. And we learn that these uh, all have um, their own unique effects on on the individual and on on their anatomy and on their physiology. Um, but and that. When you think about it, like all these things are, is there is a variation of pushing, pulling, and twisting the skin, rubbing the skin, pushing on things, uh, and they all have a different explanation for why they work. So logically, it makes no sense because if if how can you be affecting one specific tissue and not the other? Like manual right. therapy, we know isn't that specific; it's it's more general. Uh, and I think so. The commonality to all these different manual therapy interventions. The thing that's constantly emitted is, is, is the nervous system. That's the one thing that we know we're interacting with. We're touching skin. There's tons of cutaneous nerves and uh, mechanoreceptors in the skin, and you all have like the Ruffini corpuscles and all those other you know, sensory uh, bits in there. Uh, I think the biggest misconception is that we, we seem to be leaving out the, the, the mechanism that makes the most sense, and we start you know, believing that we're actually affecting connective tissue directly. And I, I think that it, all the different, there, there's such a huge variety of different treatment approaches, but they're all, their mechanism that they're all working on is all the same. Mm. So I think that we could, as a profession, we can learn how to do all those different things because it feels good, right? I mean, mm. I've had every different type of treatment out there. It all feels good. Mm. But I think the, the stories behind it is the misconception and you that makes think sense. That makes that, sense. Yeah, no, that yeah. totally makes sense. Yeah. And do you feel that writing that story or giving a different narrative is crucial in changing the massage therapy profession? I think it's huge. I think my bias says that's one of the biggest things that we should be doing is we should be changing that story. And I think, first of all, it's not supported by research. Hmm. It's not supported by basic principles of science. And... We know we can touch people in a variety of ways and they get better. They feel better. But I think if we, we don't know, and this is, this is stuff I see I, in my years of practice, and I, I've been wrong, and I used to be totally into the, the fascia and stuff. You don't realize how negatively some people are going to react to those stories, to those narratives. Mm -hmm. Some people may hear their narrative about having an upslip pelvis or having like a their sacral rhythm's not appropriate or they have a, a liver that's not moving properly or they they're all their problems has to do with connective tissue adhesions or you know and, and those kind of stories some people don't care mm -hmm. there are certain people that will really hold on to that particularly people that are in pain for a long time it seems they'll really hold on to this 
this this thing, this tissue problem that's blaming that they're that that, that they can hold on to says this is why I hurt. Right. And I think if we can change that narrative to to, to being something that's like more empowering to the patients and not blaming their body part for why they hurt, then I think I think that we can have a, a much more uh, greater influence on, on their recovery. And that's what I do with my patients is I never, ever tell them a story that I feel might be harmful to them. Mm -hmm. And I, I find people respond really well to that. Yeah, and I think that's perfectly put and a great way to segue off this chat. So thank you for that. No, is there anything that you would like to leave as uh, resources that people can go to in order to either learn more about this information or to find out more about you, your courses, and your clinic? Yeah, so my I have my own website. It's ericpurvis.com, E-R-I-C-P-U-R-V-E-S. Uh, I have some blogs on there. I have uh, a listing of most of the courses I'm teaching. I need to update it. I haven't added... 2019 stuff on there yet i don't think mm -hmm. um and my clinic's website is achievehealth.ca and there's a button on the top of the page that says courses and workshops uh, so if anyone's looking for continuing education courses that are all science-based um, courses that'll be different from what you would probably take from most other ce courses uh, we have a listing of them on there and that's updated frequently and i think we have six or seven maybe eight courses scheduled for 2019 and they're not all up there but uh, most of them are right now excellent well once again eric thank you so much for joining us yeah thank you dean wonderful thanks for having me